working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today we're bringing you a roundtable discussion that Matt and I had with Cody Ron and Ben Smith of the YouTube channel Sounds Like a Drum. These guys are about 30 episodes into their series on drum tuning and tone, and it's a really well done and fascinating channel. They do in-depth tutorials on everything from getting a bunch of different sounds out of one snare drum, to increasing or decreasing the sustain in your toms, to dialing in your 24-inch kick. Ben's background in product development and Cody's experience as a working drummer in Seattle and New York make them a great team when it comes to the full spectrum of drum tones and how to achieve them. Visit us at workingdrummer.net where you can check out our entire archive of nearly 200 past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. If you want to support what we do here, along the right side of the homepage you'll see buttons for PayPal and Patreon, and every donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can follow us on social media, and if you want to be featured on Instagram, post pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. We love seeing what you all are up to out there. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, and your ratings and reviews on those platforms are very helpful. Hey, let's check in with RJ. Hello? RJ. Hey, Matt. How's it going, man? Good, man. How are you? How are you feeling today, man? Uh, a little cruddy. I think I might, may have caught a little bit of the, uh, caught a case of the itis, I think, but I'm good. <laughs> Nondescript symptoms right now, <laughs> you know, generally, generally referred to as the itis. <laughs> have you been hanging out with Kevin Murphy? Just last night, actually. Yeah, that'll do it. Does, does he have it too? <laughs> no, no, he, he's immune to it, but he just, he just gives it to other people. I think it just happens. He gives it <laughs> He's what is he patient zero maybe uh, to the yeah right there exactly the itis? yeah um. <laughs> patient zero Kevin Murphy <laughs> <laughs> but yeah man uh, been a, been a cool couple weeks since we last talked uh, I um, had the chance to cha- uh, hang out a bit with a couple guys that are actually working drummer podcast alums I believe um, Rob Mitchell who. Uh, you know, is the longtime drummer for Sixpence, None the Richer, mm-hmm. and Ben Caesar, who's, of course, Brad, you know, Paisley's drummer. Yeah. And um, super cool hang, and they're both really supportive and had a few nuggets of wisdom for me and a couple of them I wanted to share for sure, if you're up for it. Please do. You know, something that kind of in my head already that is, you know, to be everywhere you can, especially in the first few months, like hang, check out as much music as possible, be wherever every anything is happening like that see that as your full-time job in the beginning mm-hmm. um second kind of tied to the first is to seek to first experience the scene and meet people you know while being yourself like not someone who you think you need to be in order to get a gig <laughs> you know like yeah. you know the you know to you know you're you're hoping to make friends not just make not just get a gig and to, and to kind of come at it from that angle which um really kind of like lines up with how i feel about networking you know i i always feel a little sleazy if i even call it networking <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know yeah. um 
because I, I'm more of the kind of guy I think who, you know, just I, I'm interested in having, you know, friends that are, you know, have the same interest as me and, you know, love music as much as I do. And, it, you know, if that turns into an opportunity to, to play and make music, then that's great, you know, but uh, so it was, you know, really cool to hear, you know, guys that I, you know, respect kind of reinforce, uh, especially that point, um, you know, that like, you know, seek first to, you know, be a part of what's happening, you know, what's happening and, you know, be there to make friends, you know, um, I've never been the kind of guy who's like, you know, like super quick to, you know, within, within two sentences, like drop a business card on someone or, you know, someone like, mm -hmm. you know, that right. kind of, right. you know, thing. So it was cool to hear that from guys who have been successful in the industry to say that that's not, that you don't have to be that way. Uh, oh, I, there's a, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for something playing wise for myself. There's a chance that I might do a sub gig on lower broad, uh, in a couple of weeks on lower, you know, lower Broadway. So I'm um, excited about that and trying to figure out like uh like I was given like a list of tunes. Yeah. But also told that like uh you know there's like the right way to play these songs, there's the wrong way to play them and then there's the the Broadway way to play them. So <laughs> <laughs> you know I know I I you know I can imagine how much of a learning experience that's going to be but um but I just try to you know keep my ears open while I'm playing if the gig pans out and and um and really try to try to have uh, have big ears yes. and um, and be able to hear where where stuff is happening. And I actually in the gigs that I've heard on Lower Broadway before, or when I've heard people play down there, I've noticed that it's like, oh, that's not really that's not how that song ends, really. But that's apparently the way that you know everyone knew the ending, like yes. on that gig that I was watching. So is that something that you could, that you come across a lot, like playing on on Broadway? Totally, yeah. And when it gets passed down yeah. from one band to the next, uh, from generation to generation, um, I do have to run. But um, thanks again, man, okay. for your for your time. Oh, I, you bet. I hope you feel better, and uh, and we'll we'll check in again in a couple weeks. Thanks so much, Matt. We'll talk soon, man. Okay, see you, man. Bye bye. All right, bye bye. So this was a very cool chat we had with Cody and Ben. We talked a bit about their backgrounds and how Sounds Like a Drum got started, and a whole lot about how to take command of your tone as a drummer. So here we go with Cody and Ben from Sounds Like a Drum. When uh, I saw what you guys were doing, having Mike Jackson, our technical guy, who is a who does music, but he also does video production, he has taught me many things over the years. We've been friends growing up, but... It, the audio quality and the attention to detail with the graphics and everything was one of the first things I noticed about what you guys do. Yeah, oh, thanks just, so much. Yeah, that was something. I mean, we, we wanted to make sure that the the quality of the presentation, everything you were mentioning there with regards to your podcast, um, that it was something that would set it aside and that the, the information was there and the content was there, but the presentation had to be buttoned up in such a way that it made it palatable, especially because we didn't want to conform to the typical branded 60 second, like give it to you fast kind of thing. Like mm -hmm. we wanted people to be able to sit down and watch this like they're taking a lesson. Yeah, it's something I, I really appreciate about what you do is that your your presentation is, uh, is like we said super high quality, but it's also super accessible. It's not there's not a ton of bells and whistles on the screen um, in terms of like pop ups or little gimmicks. There's there's some there's some cool little stuff that kind of grabs your interest, but the focus is really on 
what you have to say, the sounds of the instruments you're working with. And like you said, like some of your videos are, I don't know, 25 minutes long or something. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a long <laughs> yeah, a form, <laughs> it's a long form thing. And, and, um, I really appreciate that you kind of just expect people to like sit down and spend some time and listen and take it in. And it's kind of, you know, the same thing we do here. We talk with people for an hour, an hour and a half and, and really, really get into some stuff. Yeah, that's excellent. I think that that's where there's an entertainment value there. And then obviously the educational value is so much higher. Obviously you want people to walk away knowing how to do what you just taught them or what you just explained or whatever context you may have provided because not everything that we're doing is a, a straight-up tutorial. Um, oftentimes, I feel like it's more of just kind of opening people's minds to things mm-hmm. um, and considering alternatives to what they may have already been doing. Um, but to get them to really pull some value from that and not just having wasted, you know, 15 to 25 minutes. Yeah, man. And I mean, there's also just – I mean, thinking about like lectures like in school or something like that. I feel like a really good lecture is it's going to take a little while, but the backstory that you can offer when you do do that is really important. And it, it gives some context and some value to those bullet points that people do take away. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I I don't feel like necessarily you're trying to capture them and keep their interest by talking really fast or using, like you guys say, the pop-ups and all this mm-hmm. high energy, like in your face thing. I mean, if, if there is a, and I, I want to talk a little bit about this maybe uh, as we move on down, but there's a common theme in uh, many of the comments that you get, especially the way you present things, Cody, is that they're like, dude, it's so relaxed. It's so easy to watch. And it's not like, mm-hmm. hey, everybody, la, 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 you know, in your face. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I'm assuming that those that feedback and those positive comments give you guys a sense of direction on what to keep doing or what to tweak here or there or you know yeah. moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean the 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 way that we got into it in the first place, at least from my perspective, was that I I like the idea of it feeling less like I'm going to tell you what to do and more like we're hanging out and having a coffee and I'm just going to answer some questions that, Mm. that I had to find answers to myself because there wasn't anything like this when I didn't know these things and Mm -hmm. having it be simple and conversational and specifically not scripted like bullet points, but not, not like a presentation that's planned ahead of time uh, really seemed like the sort of thing I would want to receive, you know? Definitely. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you guys how you guys got started. What was what was hmm. how did this uh, all begin? Well, uh, <laughs> we we had we had a chance meeting uh, at the NAM show. Uh, I don't know five five years ago. Was, uh, yeah, twenty thirteen. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, like like most people at their first time going to NAM and performing there, I was like. I want to go and talk to companies and I want to get cool stuff and be fancy, which, you know, is, and boy, is, is do they very, want to talk to you. And you know, that's exactly <laughs> what anyone there wants to do. And, uh, and so I, I went to, I went to the D'Addario booth, um, because I mean, I like Promark stuff. I like Evan's stuff already. And, uh, I had this idea in my head that I wanted to talk to the person that actually knew something about the products and not just somebody who was going to like give me a sticker or a flyer and send me on my way. So I went to the, (laughs) I went to the desk where the sort of like, 
I don't know what to call it, just like people that you would talk to, like a, like a sort yeah, of secretary kind of situation. Exactly. Yep. And I and I asked them a really, really specific question so that they would have to find the specialist. <laughs> <laughs> and they sent Ben over and we talked a little bit and then uh, and kind of hit it off. And then it turned out that he was moving to my neighborhood in Brooklyn like wow. a couple months later. So we got together and had uh, a couple of beers at a bar near the house uh, where I live now and just kind of became buddies and then, yeah, almost five years later, or a little over five years later, we had a we had a beer at that same bar. And Ben said, "I've got this idea where you know all this stuff, and I'm starting this production company, and I think it'd be really cool for this to be a project for that company where we disseminate some important information, and also um, sort of do a proof of concept thing of you know like his abilities as a videographer and a, a builder of of content and stuff like that." and so, seemed like the right thing to do. And that became Cadence Independent Media. Oh, that, that actually became Sounds Like a Drum. Oh, uh, I got you. Okay. Cad- so. Cadence Independent Media was something that I started when I left Diderio in March of 2017. Um, I'd already been functioning as a freelancer on the side while still maintaining my job at Diderio. Um, and it got to a point where I was looking for some new challenges. I was having to turn down freelancing work, which is the most painful thing to do. Um, I'd been at Diderio for six and a half years at that point, and I was looking for some new growths, new challenges, new opportunities, and I'd really found a passion for uh, social marketing and content creation and the strategic development, uh, like really, really getting inside <laughs> the value of social media, especially because so much of a spotlight's being put on it and a negative tilt has been put on social media as of late. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the commentary on how it's used has turned into a commentary about the thing rather than it being a vehicle that can be used for good or bad and interpreted in different ways. Um, and so that was something that I, I really wanted to pursue full time. Um, and it worked out perfectly that I wanted to have some sort of a, a personal project on the side um, that was funneled through Cadence Independent Media, but that was it was a passion project. And you know, Cody and I have talked drum sounds literally from day one. You know, we were yeah. talking when we when we met at the NAMM show. We were talking about the performance of drum heads and different choices in heads and their function and the, all the behind the scenes nitty gritty stuff that I always enjoy geeking out over. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the average player doesn't necessarily get that into it, or there. There's a little bit of a barrier to entry there. So when we started talking about this series. And, and putting this information out there, we wanted it to be from the perspectives of someone who's a full-time player and, and recording drummer who ha- can speak from true experience, not having just watched another video on YouTube and interpreted it and made it their own and then produced something saying essentially the same thing or distilling it down, but to really speak from past experiences and experimentation. Um, and then from the point of view of someone who has developed these products and has worked, I mean, I'm also a drummer and, um, you know, and studied drums and percussion music performance in college, but I took more of the industry path after college. And, uh, I think that the two of us have these interesting perspectives that kind of weave in and out from each other, um, that make it a much more more interesting experience than what we've seen in the past. 
Right. And, and so you represent more the kind of the industry uh, product development side of the duo, whereas Cody represents the, the performer side, the working drummer side, yes? Absolutely. And at, at the same time, though, I think that Cody's understanding of the technical aspects, and especially as we've had these discussions over the last five years, he really understands so much more now of the technical aspects from the industry perspective. You know, he's also, he's an Evans and Promark artist Mm -hmm. and he has those relationships with the company, even though I'm no longer there. Um, And so there's, there's a really nice blend of those things. It's not like, you know, I jump into the shot and put on the uh, industry hat and Cody jumps on the shot and puts on the performance hat. It's like we've, mm-hmm. we've taken these different um, aspects and knowledge bases and kind of blended them certain ways. And, you know, I'm, I'm much more happy when I don't have to do as many things as are necessary to produce this on my own. Like there's, yeah, I could try and produce this on my own, but it's no fun filming in a content studio where you're filming, you're recording, you're also speaking to the camera and there's no no one else there. Right. And so, and, and at the same time, it's like, again, I don't have the full-time professional drummer experience that Cody does to be able to speak about this stuff from an educated, like true experienced standpoint. Yeah. And that was something that I knew was lacking in what I'd seen in a lot of other YouTube channels and other content channels. And I wanted to make sure that we were really presenting that side of things. And as far as, uh, your performing experience, Cody, um, can, can you just talk a little bit about what, what that experience is, how long you've been in New York? Um, what, what keeps you busy as a performer? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I'm from California originally and I went to college in Seattle for music. Where, where in California? Uh, San Francisco. Oh, nice. Okay. North Bay. Yeah. And, um, and so in Seattle, uh, obviously there's tons of bands to play in and, and tons of venues. I moved there in 90 or I guess it was 2001. And so living there and sort of being a full-time musician and also teaching a lot, um, just to kind of pay the bills, you know, the, um, the, the opportunities there are super diverse and there's also a boatload of studios there. So I, I pretty quickly after school got into just playing in a lot of different kinds of bands and a lot of different sorts of gigs and also like playing with my professors and, and actually playing at the school in some of the ensembles where they needed to bring in um, professionals from outside to just sort of like fill out for like the vocal standards class or something like that. Right. You know? So over the course of doing like a super quiet standards class in the morning where it's entirely acoustic and you have to play brushes for two hours and then doing a really heavy rock session in the afternoon and then putting on a suit and playing like a cocktail party that night, uh, you, you end up having to address the sound of the instrument a lot. And then, uh, also how it reacts to the room and what implements you're using, things like that. And one thing that I had a teacher say to me when I was there um, about another drummer is that he struggled with the idea, uh, he was a sax player, and he struggled with the idea of people choosing the implement for the the music that they're playing based on how quiet it needed to be. Like, for instance, using bundle rods instead of sticks when they would rather use sticks, but they need to be quieter. Mm-hmm. And so getting into changing the drum sound or getting into choosing different sticks or straight up just learning how to play really quietly. And right. then at the same time, learning how to play really, really loud. Yeah. 
um, it, it affects the drums you choose and the heads you choose and all those sorts of things. So I did, uh, I did a lot of sessions there at a studio called uh, Bear Creek and also at like Studio X and Litho and some other places that are, you know, they've been around forever. And there'd be pictures of like Dave Grohl and Eric Clapton on the fridge, like making wow. sandwiches in the kitchen and stuff. Right. And it's like, this is right. bonkers. <laughs> um, and so I, I met my girlfriend, who's my wife now, um, at that same college. And when I was 28, she wanted to go to grad school in New York uh, for music. And I said, I don't know. I've got a really good thing going in Seattle here. And she said, well, I'm going. And I said, well, I guess I'm going. So, yeah. So I sold, I sold all my extra going gear too. to afford it. Yeah. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I had, I had some fancy symbols and stuff that ended up, you know, paying for the, for the moving truck. And, the oh, gas. Boy. and we, uh, we drove out here and she went to school and I just started kind of trying to find things to do and, uh, made a lot of connections at NYU through her time in school there. Mm-hmm. And, um, just sort of tried to branch out into a new sort of social network and scene and stuff here. Yeah. And that now that I mean, the work here is similar. Um, the nice thing about New York is that there is a lot of playing to do if you are not just like a good player, like everyone is kind of a good player, which I was warned about, like everybody plays good here, kind of. Right. But there are an awful lot of people who don't show up on time or forget their charts or don't wear the right outfit for the gig and that kind of thing. Yeah. And as soon as somebody sees that you're going to do those things, they will never call anybody else after that. Yep. So yep. It's the, all reason, about just like, the reason you yeah. get fired or the reason you continue to get called usually has nothing to do with how you play. Yeah, it's a it's a curious it's a curious thing for sure. Um, <laughs> so, so in, I mean, you know, managing to practice and stay up on the instrument here, of course, is you know do that too. But figuring out how to be indispensable to people so that they recommend you for stuff, and you know, parlaying that into other gigs and things like that. So yeah, it's it's about like maybe twenty percent of my time is teaching, and then most of it is playing live shows, and then. Uh, just working on records with the people that I play with, and there's a, there's a handful of producers that um, that call me for stuff repeatedly, right. which I appreciate. Yeah, you know, it says all those things make up the the big picture of who you are and, and what makes you a, a valuable in, employer for so many people. You're mm-hmm. playing, you know, obviously, but but as Zach says, you know, your professionalism, but also I think that you guys are introducing this element that doesn't get this discussed so much so the tone and i imagine that there's times in sessions and gigs that you guys come into and people are like that sounds incredible this is this is why this is why you're here or you know just your attention to detail that allows that to happen yeah Um, definitely how do you guys decide like what you're going to cover as you move through this, because I, I would, are you guys up to 25 episodes right now? Uh, 26, I think episode 26 was launched yesterday. Okay, cool. Yep. Um, and, and you, there's a consistency, yeah. but I mean, there's certain spotlights and things like that, but I'm, I'm wondering what is, is there a game plan as far as deciding what to cover? <laughs> or do you guys just have like a laundry list and just start checking them off? As you I mean, I mean, to, 
The most common is what happened today, which is I wrote Ben last night at like 10 o'clock at night and was like, what do you feel like doing tomorrow? And he's like, well, I was thinking about blah, blah. And I was like, cool. Well, I was also thinking about this other thing. And he's like, well, let's do those two things. And why don't you bring your, you know, your Noble and Cooley snare and we'll do a, we'll do a snare spotlight on that because somebody asked for it in the comments of the last snare video. Yeah. So it's, it, it ends up being relatively casual. I mean, we've got, we have an overall trajectory of things that we know we want to cover. We've gotten through what we considered to be kind of like the 101 level content, which was let's address each of the, the main instruments in a typical drum set, go through the tuning process, show a couple different approaches, um, illustrate um, what can be done to experiment beyond those things and, and start feathering in ideas like um, how does the tom mount selection affect the sustain of the drum or how can you control sustain without affecting tone. Um, so we'll pepper in those ideas, um, but we're getting closer and closer to the point where we can get into really specific things and uh, niche approaches to stuff or sounds that might be very specific to a given style mm -hmm. or in the past at least have been used only in a given style and you know how they may be experimented with um but uh you know we've had a lot of people requesting uh us getting into symbols mm -hmm. things like that wow. so we've we have mentioned that in the future we will be diving into the world of symbols despite the uh the drum centric name for the channel <laughs> yeah i was gonna say you're gonna start a new channel sounds like a symbol right <laughs> sub channel yeah sizzles <laughs> like a symbol yeah, yeah. <laughs> no no it'll it'll stay under sounds like a drum for sure well yeah. you touched on you touched on two things that I wanted to ask you about, and one was the the symbol thing, which I'm I'm glad to hear that you'll be uh, diving into that eventually. Mm -hmm. But but the other one was just this concept of um, how how certain sounds and tones and timbres are associated with certain styles. Um, mm -hmm. So and you you know you've referenced things here and there in in your videos, but in um, you know in the course of making these videos or or in preparing for them. Uh, are there are there generalities that you found? Are there kind of uh, you know buckets that you can put sets of sounds in for uh, certain styles? Just to give people like um, you know kind of a starting point. Like if I'm if I'm in yeah the yeah I I definitely I mean the 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 thing that I think about the most is that when I'm coming into a project that I, maybe I don't know the people that are in it, or I'm not sure like what their aesthetic might be. Cause like at this point things cross a lot of borders. And if somebody says that they're a folk singer, that might mean Wilco or it might mean like iron and wine with Calexico, or right. it might mean like some kind of really heavy, like, like a Sturgill Simpson country rock thing. And so I, I go out of my way to get them to tell me ahead of time what they are into and mm -hmm. send me some music that gives them the vibe that they're looking for. And then I can make choices ahead of time. You know, I mean, I can make it work with most any stuff, but I might as well kind of like hedge the bet a little bit and make sure that I can I can bring up something that's not going to take too much tweaking. Right. right. Um, and yeah. And but what that also results in is seeing that when someone says a style, they do have certain things that they mean when they say that style or that sound. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there is a, a way to do that style or the, a way to do that sound, but it will send you sort of to the drawing board to figure out what they mean by that. And so when it, when it comes to those sort of overarching sounds, I think that 
I think that I mean, at least the way that I am looking forward to approaching it is picking a little bit narrower of an idea. Like the one that comes to mind is that someone asked in a comment a couple of days ago about bop tuning, like bebop tuning. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of like there's sort of like a glossed over version of describing that, which is to say you tune it all really high. Yeah. Like, you know, my, one of my professors that played with Max Roach back in the day, he said to me in a class, he's like, you know what Max Roach says about tuning drums? And I go, no, man, what did he say? And he says, tune the drum as high as it will go. And then it is in tune. Like, wow. Max Roach said that to him. And I was like, I think he was either being facetious or there's more to it than that. Cause his drums sound good. You know, right. You know, right. Like, like that. But on the other hand, you know, I've also heard a lot of straight ahead music, like swing music from the eighties where people were like, I want my drums to sound like Steve Gadd. And then I'm going to play straight ahead on, on these like, (laughs) you know, hydraulic heads. Totally. And there's a, there, that's a sound, but I think that much like, um, much like fashion or a lot of other things that people use to sort of define their lifestyle, people want authenticity. They want to project authenticity in their lives to be respected and taken seriously. And there's a kind of authenticity to a sound that the player can then play it and they sound comfortable and they sound like they like that sound. Right. And that's, that's you, you totally uh, took, took words out of my mouth because uh, as I was like my, you know, my background in, in college and throughout my twenties was in jazz. And Mm -hmm. as I started to branch into other styles, uh, like starting out in that, I wasn't comfortable with what I was playing. Like it didn't feel mm-hmm. right. It didn't sound right. And I realized that it, it had, um, it had less to do with my actual playing. Cause like, you know, I was, I was, I was playing the content, um, mm-hmm. and it had to do with the sounds of my drums and the sounds I was choosing. Um, mm-hmm. and the more I kind of opened my ears to, to getting, more appropriate sounds for whatever style I was branching into, the happier I was, the better I felt about what I was playing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think of it like an accent. Like yeah. you can meet someone who's learned French and then you meet somebody who's from France and their <laughs> accent is never, ever going to be the same. And like my jazz accent, it's fine. But like I had a reverse thing to what you were describing. I came up playing rock and punk and metal mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I went to college and I was like, I'm going to play jazz music. And I had a really tough time just dealing with drums that were tuned that high and right. dealing with cymbals that had a lot of spread. Mm-hmm. And that was rough. <laughs> but then on the other hand, like hearing things where the the sound and the aesthetic is sort of like to me to my ear at the time mismatched like hearing the first time i heard medesky martin wood and being like this guy's playing funk music on jazz drums and they're not tuned like you know an erica badu record or something like they're janky and weird sounding and his cymbal has a big crack in it and (laughs) that really got me thinking that like i don't have to do anything i Mm -hmm. can kind of do what i want as long as it works in the in the greater scheme of things, and that that was I think maybe thinking about it now that's actually maybe where all of this kind of started because then I thought well I can certainly express myself with what I'm playing, but there's also something to be said for the sounds that you choose. I mean, like the first time I saw somebody playing like Native American drums as part of their drum set, or anytime somebody was doing like a hodgepodge thing of stuff that like didn't match. Like I remember when I needed all my drums to be the same color. 
You know? <laughs> okay. And then I saw Bill Stewart and I was like, oh, his drums are a disaster and they sound fantastic. <laughs> yes. About the sound, you know, like this is funny. And that confidence of the player and their sense of integrity and the sound they're making makes that kind of stuff cool instead of it looking like they found that stuff in their grandpa's basement and are like trying to hack it, you know? Right. Right. And I think that's a consistent thing that you guys present in there is that, look, if this sounds good to you, great. If not, you know, whatever, but this is not Mm -hmm. a right or wrong kind of thing. And and, and I think that's kind of the beauty of our instrument is that Mm -hmm. it's still, and it's, very, you know, it's a very young instrument. Uh, do you guys? Uh, I'm trying to. Remember. Fred Armisen had that stand-up bit he did on Netflix. Yeah, uh, comedy for drummers, and at the end he goes through all the different eras of drums. And it, I love Fred, and it was pretty funny, but it wasn't as funny as I wanted it to be. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you. But uh, it was really fun at the end when he went through, not only demonstrated the different sounds through the eras with the actual drums and the tunings, but then he kind of played a, a, a version of that, that era, that style, and uh, in his way. Uh, and it was really fun. Uh, but it kind of shows you how we're kind of on this trajectory of evolution with with the sound and and i feel like we're kind of going through this new renaissance of drum sounds where people are not afraid like you say to experiment with all these things and say i i felt like i did retail for a while uh, in, in ohio and down here in nashville mm-hmm. throughout the uh late 90s into the 2000s and especially through the 90s you had drums with like you said just dw came out with these um, beautiful finishes and gold-plated hardware and then black hardware was was popular so there was mm-hmm. an aesthetic to drums the way there was even with guitars and, sure. and, and all these other instruments throughout the 90s there was an aesthetic to drums that i think detracted or distracted people from important things like tone and an experience Experimentation, and uh, it, they were hearing with their eyes more so during that time. Where I feel like, with like you mentioned, Medeski Martin and Wood, and, and different groups like this, that all of a sudden you're going, wait a minute, why is there a towel on the cymbal? Why mm-hmm. is there a tambourine taped to the bass drum on that session? Mm-hmm. Because it, we're it, we have the ability, we have the technology to record just about anything and perform. Uh, but now here's here's something that is just close your eyes and listen and you know so yeah. absolutely and I think that that's that's another element that especially with and you know here I'm gonna rag on social media now um, <laughs> please with, jump in there man with the presence and it's I mean the irony of this coming from someone who makes their living off of it um, but at the same time it's the the idea of I think the the most effective use of social media tends to be in telling stories. And I think that when we are searching for a story and something that lacks the depth in its presentation, like, sure, we could post, if we wanted to, we could post photos every single day of our our collective snare collection and just geek out and make, like, it would be drum porn for days. (laughs) And we could make it all about that. And that might get a lot of likes and everything. But at the end of the day, if that's the depth that it goes to, 
there's not going to be a whole lot of value for people. Yeah, there's that moment of excitement of, oh, I saw a cool thing, you know, the dopamine rush of, oh, here's a really interesting thing. And then they move on, they scroll past, maybe they like it, maybe they even, you know, take a moment to comment. But there's no critical thinking there, there's no conversation that takes place. And that's the easier experience to get someone to go through than it is to, hey, watch this 60-second preview video for our latest episode where we demonstrate either uh, the history of this concept or we actually illustrate the sound of it. You're going to have to use your ears and not just your eyes. Please don't judge how it sounds based on how it looks, Um, but to get people to go that far And I do think it's exciting to see things like um, what Adam's doing with Morph Beats and the the construction of all these different um, unique sounds that extend far beyond the the typical drum set world, um, because it does stretch people's perception of what drums and percussion are and how they can be applied, not just to uh, more art music, but to even mainstream music. And with the addition, I mean, every time I see someone comment about, oh, there's those hipsters and their jingles on their hi-hats again. I'm like, okay, yes, but did you listen to it? You know, like, right. yeah, maybe, you know, some people are making that decision because it's in vogue and because they see, oh, so-and-so's got a ching ring. I've got to have a ching ring. This is mm-hmm. a cool thing to do. Yeah. Um, but I think that that shouldn't detract from those that are making the decision from an artistic standpoint, recognizing, hey, I want my drums to sound like this for this musical scenario this is this thing I'm going to do and maybe it's hasn't been super popular in the past and I'm going to make a different artistic statement with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tone, uh, and, and sound is one of those things that like, like, like Matt said, it's, it's kind of in vogue right now, like this, this attention to detail and, and tone manipulation, but it's also, um, you know, a subject that, uh, that people can go, go deeper on. Um, on on social media and it becomes uh, you know not just a vogue surface level thing um which uh i'm not sure I w- where i was going with that but <laughs> no I, I totally agree though I, I think that there's there's a lot of conversation to be had and if if we're able to help facilitate even the smallest bit of that then i think we've done our job you right know, I, our, I guess our, what, what i was saying is that it's a it's a it's an en vogue thing that that also happens to be of of great value to drummers and to music in general and i think this uh you know this this popular thing is going to lead to more drummers sounding better. I certainly hope so. <laughs> and, and not not even just sounding better, but making making decisions that are informed and, and critically thinking about those artistic statements that are being made beyond just what they play and even how they play it. But what does it sound like? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause, I mean, because people talk about the content of playing, like in terms of ideas and technique and soloing in those terms, they're like, you can hear when somebody's developing ideas and trying to say something with the instrument versus somebody who has a bunch of licks that sound good and they play them, you know, and likewise with sound, some people use whatever sound is there and they sound totally good. But if they, if they had that same kind of concern about it, the way that, I don't know, an awful lot of other instruments and instrumentalists do, you know, they get concerned about tone and about, 
just every aspect of the sound that they're making. You know, yeah. it is your voice. Yeah, yeah. It is your voice that you're expressing with. So, I mean, you may as well take a minute and, and learn how to how to use that voice beyond just like shouting. Right. <laughs> I, I, I was trying to think earlier uh, if, if I heard it from you guys or if it was part of a discussion that I had with one of our interviewees. They were talking about guitar players being obsessed with tone. Mm-hmm. You know, every, mm-hmm. just about every guitar player we know is constantly crouching over their pedals and, and doing everything to and just and talking about tone constantly. And why, why aren't we? Why aren't we paying more attention to that? Uh, it's, and it just it just makes it just makes sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'd even say to because I know that there are some people that are definitely like all about oh I've got to have that cool new boutique pedal I you know I heard this sound on this video I've got to have that sound I need to add that to my my arsenal of uh, of sonic choices um, one of the things that we've definitely tried to push here is not necessarily taking on such a mass consumerism perspective but yes. you have so many of the tools right in front of you um, you know yeah there are great tools for tuning and measuring and quantifying the value of tuning and things like that or all sorts of different products that you can buy to assist with that process or even to just create a different sound. Um, But how much have you done to explore what you're capable of with the given setup that you've got? And and to, again, think creatively about it um, before you go throwing your wallet down. Invest in time before you start investing in more products. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, something that's, you know, super sexy on Instagram is, is the huge snare collection or, you know, check out this set of concert toms I just found. Um, but I, I really dig that, that you guys are, uh, taking the time to teach drummers how to get as many different sounds out of a small number of drums as possible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crucial, man. Like the, especially, I mean, living somewhere like New York where you can't really drive all your gear around all the time. (laughs) And then like half the clubs here, even like good size, you know, like many hundreds of people, big clubs have backline. And a lot of them don't want you to bring your stuff because they don't have anywhere to put the backline gear. They don't want you to show up in the middle of of, of like a four band night and make them move everything when the other three bands are playing the backline gear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's you know? a great way to not get invited back. <laughs> so, right. so you know, like, I think I, I mean, when we were talking to Seamus, you know, I think I told the story, but there was a night, there were two nights really close together that was right after I moved here that really freaked me out. And one of them was a day where I came into a club. I was playing with a singer-songwriter, playing some, like, you know, country music, nothing crazy. And... The guy playing before me, I'd never seen him before. His name's Josh Dion. You may have yeah, I know seen Josh. or heard of him. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, my God, that dude is slaying. Uh-huh. And it sounds amazing. And then I did my set, and I was like, these drums sound terrible. <laughs> and then I was packing up my head or my cymbals, and I look up, and Mark Giuliano standing there. And I was oh. like, God damn it. <laughs> and then I went to the bar, and he played, and they sounded good again. And mm-hmm. those guys didn't do anything. They just played. And I was like, okay. And then, like, a month later, I was at another club. I was playing the trashed old Camco house kit. And I was like, these are the most busted drums I've ever played in my life. And I got up, grabbed my cymbals, and JoJo Mayer standing there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, man. And then he sat down. No joke, pulled a cracked cymbal from behind the stage, put it on a cymbal stand, and did his gig. 
on those because it was he was just like it was a jam with some people and he sounded like him and he yeah. didn't do anything to the drums either and i was like i have some homework to do you know <laughs> like for serious right yeah what is that i mean that that it's so amazing that that i've i've heard that you how people do that they draw that sound out of the just the crappiest drums well it's, it's the amazing. it's the it's the confidence thing because if mm. you don't feel like you sound good, then you play differently and you make a yeah, different sound. Sure. And yeah. if you're like, the sound is in me and I'm not making up for these drums being terrible. No one here is judging me right now. I'm just making music. Like it's a, it's a super mental thing. I mean, obviously these guys are great players. Their touch is ridiculous and their, all of their playing is amazing. But that physical part of the instrument comes from them being cool with not worrying about that stuff. Yeah, and I think it it also comes from um, you know a, uh, once you get a certain amount of experience, you kind of learn the you you learn the sound that your body makes on the drums mm-hmm. um, exactly, and yeah. you're you're more and more able to to kind of tap into that and recreate it on any drum set in any setting. Um, and it was, it was another thing I'm thinking about because as much time and effort as you guys are putting into uh, you know educating drummers about how to achieve all kinds of different sounds, you know, the, the other side of it is like, what sound do I make? What sound do my (laughs) hands and feet make? And how do I marry that with all these different skills of how to manipulate the sounds of the drums? Yeah. Yeah, We were just talking about that earlier was the, you know, we've, we're discussing a lot of the, the what and what sounds can you get? What can you do? And, and even how, how do you make those decisions or not? How do you make those decisions, but how do you get there? What's the, you know, if you're starting at point A, how do you get to point B? Um, But then the next thing to really cover beyond this is the why, and mm-hmm. why would you make the decision to tune something like that or to choose that drum? And a, a lot of that is it's stuff that we can't really answer for people. Mm-hmm. But if we can get them asking those questions and thinking, again, critically thinking about why they're making those decisions and what can be done based on the experiences that they've had, maybe playing in a particular room or with a particular artist or whatever it may be, but mm-hmm. so that they're doing it, it's a concerted effort rather than just simply dealing with a situation and, you know, choosing to ride it out. Right. I think that's a really important thing. Just the last couple months digging into your channel. I had a rehearsal last night and I sat down with the snare drum that was provided and I would normally just grab mine, which I know is tuned the way I wanted, but I was able to just, just in watching, but not sitting down with a snare drum in front of your channel, but just having soaked it up just through osmosis in many respects, sitting down with a snare drum and, and, and finding ways to get the sound really fast. I mean, and I've been doing this for a really long time, but the stuff that you guys talk about is, is it was just, it helped me get there really fast. It was, and I played it for the rest of the rehearsal and it sounded amazing. Man, that's great. I mean, that, that's, 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 that's the hope, at least for me, man, like that, that's so, it's so great to, to be able to know that you can do what you need to do and at least get close enough to, to do the work that you have well, to do. Well, and, and I think this is this all comes full circle because it, here in Nashville, for me, uh, I play house kits all the time in rehearsals, mm-hmm. in, even in studios and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and in different clubs. And so you're dealing, and, and there's a guy in town who's been a guest on the show, John Root, who takes care of about a dozen different clubs where he keeps the new heads on there, make sure that there's the hardware's up to date, you know, everything like that, that, that is just 
invaluable, but then there are clubs that they just don't care anything about the kit. Mm-hmm. So you really have to, it, so I, I think what I'm talking about, the, this full circle thing is, is you guys are so right. Like when you play with confidence, there is a sound that emanates and an energy that emanates from you. But sometimes that confidence can be crushed by shitty sounding drums, but having yeah. great sounding drums boosts your confidence. And so how do you, how do you keep that circle going and, and, and taking something like really really crappy but saying you know okay if i just this is as far as i can go and sometimes people are waiting for you you don't have much of a sound check so Mm -hmm. there's even that um but like get for me it's like kick and snare drum and then and then whatever else it's it's that's just icing on the cake but you just got to get rolling but some of those tricks in getting things going as fast as possible so yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I it, it sounds like it sounds like you have similar experiences down there to here, where like some of the venues, you use the backline kits, and also the switchover between the bands is like ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Like, yeah, like it's you know you you have enough time to set your stuff down and hit everything <laughs> and go. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, that sounds bad, and then fix it <laughs> as quickly as you possibly can, or, or decide that you're not using that. That twelve-inch tom, and right? I'm just oh, <laughs> I, I've definitely done that. And they're like, "Oh, what an interesting choice!" And I'm like, "Have you seen that?" Thing? Like, I, don't want, I, don't I always want a lot accidentally hit that. Yeah, <laughs> I always give myself like two or three minutes to uh, put my beer down, spill it, mm-hmm. then figure out how to get it cleaned up. <laughs> so there's always a little buffer there. Yeah, yeah. that's your, that's your ten minutes right there. That's yeah. your 10 minutes. <laughs> I got a beer on me. Do I have other pants? No. <laughs> okay, I do. I, okay, I, I just have to share this real quick. I, somebody called me. I was doing a gig, and, and they came by. The drummer walked out of the club next door, and they said, when you're done with this, can you come over and finish the last hour of our set, two hours of our set? I'm like, uh, sure. So I, I went over there. They, I said, I just I need something to eat. They gave me like a cup of Coke or something. I set it on the drum stool. I, I'm putting my cymbals up. I was exhausted. I, of course, I sit on it. Just, <laughs> oh, man. you know. Plastic Coke, yeah. That was. I did not budge from that throne because it was pretty sticky. But uh, oh, <laughs> good times. <laughs> oh, man, man, I did that. I did that with a hot cup of coffee in a car one time. Oh. I was like three hours from home, and I was almost to the gig, and I bought a cup of coffee, oh, and I no. set it down to drive out of the parking lot, and I like hit kind of hard and oh. squeezed it together, and it just all. Was up and down. yeah, I mean, luckily I had pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> so I did the gig in pajamas. There you go. Oh was, wow! Yeah, that, are you guys my... going to cover this? Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, pajama and uh, the mixture of pajama, coffee, and alcohol muffling techniques will yeah. definitely come yeah, up. That's that, the you know. next episode, right there. <laughs> Just always bring a towel, man. Hitchhiker's Guide. Oh, always yes. bring a towel. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. I know you guys cover a lot of tone, and I find myself over time, maybe maybe this is something you guys can touch upon. There's times that, especially with house kits and, and things like that, I find myself setting up, especially tom, floor tom, maybe it's just low drums, floor tom and kick drum 
to be almost, no, I'm playing mostly pop, I'm not playing a lot of jazz, but I'm playing mostly just loud pop music. Yeah. Uh, so I can tune them way low. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find myself, even when I was playing jazz, I would still tune the kick drum down low. And I think I became obsessed with the feel. So my question is, at what point do you, where is that balance between tone and feel? Because it's like you want the drum to feel a certain way to get you to perform a certain way, because I'm always wrestling with that in my head. It's like, yes, this drum doesn't sing the way I I would want it to, but man, it's making me play more like me and with more confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a that's a heavy duty question. Um, you know, we we do we touch on that a little bit in the in the pedal setup video, um, just with regards to the bass drum. But right. one thing I can one thing I can say, and I'll, I'll get into that more in a minute. One thing I can say for sure is that when it comes to the feel of the drum, I think that the first place that I go with that sort of thing is just to make sure that it's fitting in with the music. And sometimes I have to make a little bit of a sacrifice in terms of the feel that, that I would rather have. Right. Um, but right. particularly with house kits, like I realized a little while back and, and there's, well, there's, there's two sides to this. There's mic'd house kit and there's unmiked house kit. <laughs> yep. And with unmiked house kit, I kind of throw my feel preferences under the bus immediately hmm. because if I'm doing a pop thing and I like a low tuning, it's not always going to sail to the audience or over the PA in a way that's functional. So oftentimes I'll I'll flip the tuning script a little bit from what I would do if it was mic'd. And just just as a as a for instance, like uh, a place I play in the city a lot has an old Rogers kit that's like a twelve, a sixteen, and a twenty. And that's a great like mid-sized set of drums. The 12 is high enough to be high. The 16 is big enough to be big sounding. And a 20 can do most things. Now, that kit is not ever mic'd. And it's also not on the stage with the band. The band is up maybe like 14 inches. And the drums are sort of to the side. So immediately, the first thing that I'm thinking is this tone has to get to the other side of the stage for the guitarist, yeah. you know, 20 feet away from me to feel presence from the drum set. So even though it's a 20, I'll tune the batter head up some, like a quarter turn, and I'll lower the front head. And what that's going to do is give, it's going to boost the punch of the drum in terms of tone, but then lowering the front head is going to lower the pitch of the tone that it's throwing. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And conversely, if that drum was mic'd, I can kind of do whatever I want with the front head, but I can I can take screws out of the batter head if it's mic'd. If they've got like a D112 in or you know like a like a bass drum specific mic, they'll put the low end in, and it doesn't really matter what's in there. Yeah. Um, and similarly with floor toms, like having a floor tom so low that it's almost slack and it's got that rumble, that's a beautiful sound. But if you take your head and put it next to the drum, or if you get next to the kit and walk 10 feet away that tone isn't going anywhere it's going up and down to, for you it's coming out of the top of the head and feels good where you're at and five feet away it sounds like it's made of cardboard no matter you know how nice or lousy of a drum it is so again like pitching it up a little bit and understanding that the tone carrying is going to affect everyone's performance yeah yeah and you want to give them that i mean the most common 
tuning scenario on backline kits that I find, and we'll just talk about toms and bass drum because I kind of I, I like to bring my own scenarios. I think right. we all probably do. What I almost always see is that the batter heads are almost not on the toms, and the rezzo heads are tabletop tight, hmm. and then the bass drum is not in tune with itself because I think a lot of times people think that it doesn't need to be to throw the tone, <laughs> but it's a drum and it does. And then they will oftentimes have the front head on the bass drum tuned really high because they're afraid of boominess mm-hmm. in the room or boominess in the mic or maybe feedback or something like that. So you have to, at the very least, lower the rezzo heads on everything just so that there's tone at all. Um, it's almost as if whoever did that wished that they had concert toms and no front head on the on the bass drum. Right, you right. Know? And that is the sound they end up with. And they're like, oh, I'll, they'll fix it at the mixing board and it'll sound great. But what about everybody on stage that in like a mid-sized club, like a 500-person club, they're not going to put the kit in everybody's monitors. Yeah. Right. And the guy so, at the mixing board may or may not know what the hell he's doing. <laughs> yeah. If you're not <laughs> yeah, traveling totally. with your own front of house guy, I mean, yeah. you you never know, man. Yeah. Like, you just never know. Yeah. Well, what you're talking about are, are examples of um, – uh, how you guys uh like you don't you don't give kind of specific um you don't give specific recipes necessarily for like here's what you should do in this situation you just kind of lay out these techniques um to to achieve these different things and like I'm I'm heavy into cooking so I always make these cooking analogies like so so Perfect. much of here, here we go again uh, yeah here we go buckle up uh, <laughs> I'm ready man I got oh, some yeah. of my own we can go toe to toe absolutely <laughs> Well, this, this comes up on a regular basis. It's yeah. the perfect analogy to what we're yeah, doing man. here. Yeah, hey, like what? It smells like a drum. It smells like a drum. <laughs> it smells like a chicken. <laughs> oh lord! Um, but like something I found in in cooking is that uh, getting things right and making things awesome is usually pretty easy. Screwing it up is even easier. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like in, in watching your videos, like, you know, nothing, nothing you're talking about is rocket science. It's Mm -hmm. just a matter of, of knowing about it and being able to kind of think and conceptualize in a certain way. Like another example is I just watched the, uh, the one snare three sounds video. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and you just kind of mentioned in passing about how, like in general on a snare drum, the you know the tuning range of of the batter head can be huge, whereas the tuning range of the the snare side head uh, is is definitely narrower, mm-hmm. um, and that's I think something that that uh, you know we're all aware of to to one extent or another. But I like when you said that I immediately just got this visual of like um, like it's a visual shape like picturing picturing the uh, the batter head as wider as bigger around than the uh the snare side head mm-hmm. and you know tuning tuning accordingly that's a perfect example of just like knowing that little technique can inform uh, a bunch of recipes like there's a difference between a technique and a recipe um totally yeah totally yeah i mean i i i think that uh i think that little things like that I, I feel like they seem like maybe they are more like rocket science when you don't have the information. And like, I, I know that like I've had a couple of friends write me after seeing some of these videos and being like, yeah, I'm so glad to watch that because I was afraid to try things tuning wise 
because they didn't hate where the drum was mm-hmm. and they were afraid they couldn't get back there. Right. And, you know, if, 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 if you were sure that if you walked into the woods, you were going to get lost, obviously you wouldn't walk into the woods. But yeah. <laughs> the thing is, like, if you can get some ear training for tuning mm-hmm. the way that people can ear train for intervals or ear train for rhythms, if you can get an ear training for tuning, then you've got your trail of breadcrumbs all the time. And mm-hmm. like, if you go up a quarter turn and you don't like it and you go back down a quarter turn, you're back where you were pretty much. Mm-hmm. And following, following ears is the one thing that I haven't seen a single tuning video on YouTube address. Yeah. They want to talk about how many turns and they want to talk about pitch intervals and they want to talk about backing out the lugs next to the snare wires or those guys that do the thing on the batter where like half the lugs are out and yeah. they're doing like opposite side lugs to adjust the overtones. Or what's what number is your batter head on the this watch or on that the, Yeah, right on the, the on, right. on some tuning device. Like I, I understand I understand the point of all of that. I totally do. And I, I guess like I also grew up playing guitar and bass a mm-hmm. lot. So the actual in tune or out of tune, like it grates on my ears a little bit yeah. in a way that maybe if, if you played drums first and then something melodic later, it wouldn't be quite as intrinsic to the way that you hear the kit. But at just, just in terms of a, t- a head in tune with itself and two heads working sympathetically to make a good sound uh it's it's really not rocket science but it is a foreign it's a very foreign concept right the the other um the other kind of of course moment i had uh in one of your videos was this just this concept that the heads throw sound up and down and the shell throws sound to the side yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah um, me too yeah and yeah. like you you mentioned in one video where like you know it's you, your your intuition tells you that like you know the lower the lower you tune ahead the deeper the sound is going to be but mm-hmm. in in one video you talk about how it was i think it was the floor tom video how mm-hmm. if you have the head like super low and totally slack you won't get as big and deep a sound as you will if you just take it up a little bit so that it activates the shell mm-hmm. and and brings in more of those you know those sympathetic shell tones. And like you said, be able to throw sound out into the room rather than just yeah. whatever you're hearing right over the drums. Um, yeah, and it's another thing that like, you know, I think most of us who play drums for a living are kind of aware of these concepts in kind of an abstract way or on an occasional way. But mm-hmm. for, for you to just crystallize it like that um, was, was super, super helpful. And I was, it was like a palm on the forehead moment. Like, of course, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's 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 a huge that's a huge huge thing, and that, I mean that that is something that I picked up from sharing my kit on gigs, mm-hmm. like where they'd be like, "Is it cool if the other bands play it?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, sure." I mean, you know, you're not a if you're not going to destroy it, like that's right. fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then you know, I would tune it up, and maybe we, I maybe I was in the third band, and I'd go out front and listen to the first band and be like that does not sound like I thought it was going to. And then in between those guys, I'd go up and hit him and be like, no, that's, it's right where I left it. He didn't mess with anything. Right. And after a while, you know, you start to get this, this realization that where your head is, you're the only person in the room that's hearing that sound. Yep. And you're the least important person as far as that goes. Like <laughs> right. the band, especially if you're getting hired and people are paying you sometimes exorbitant amounts of money, like they, you have to, you have to cater to their needs and you have to cater to the needs of the audience. And especially 
considering that just like statistically, most drummers aren't playing stadiums. Right. I think most drummers are playing small clubs or maybe unmiked situations. Um, that stuff becomes enormously important. Mm -hmm. Which is, it's also interesting too, because there's a lot of discussion about, you know, playing for the song, playing pocket stuff, all about two and four, you know, so-and-so's money beats and the whatever you've got to like lock in to to serve the song. I like how you didn't say his name. And and that's great and that's important. And I think that that's a portion of the recipe or that's a portion of of the the concept. The other part of it is recognizing how it all sounds and how it serves just like you were saying Cody with the idea of your sound translating to the guitarist on the other side of the stage mm-hmm. you know who's not getting drums in their wedge and how do you deal with that and how do you make sure that your sound serves the song too and serves the circumstance yeah. recognizing that just because you played that same thing and tuned those drums the same way in the studio doesn't mean it's going to translate the same way when you don't have close mics on everything and yeah. you're playing in a small space yeah. right Right. Yeah, I think you guys bring up a really good point. I mean, that that's kind of been a, a common theme throughout the the time that we spent on this podcast is is focusing focusing our attention a lot on drummers that are working drummers that you know ninety percent of them are not playing the arenas and don't have because a lot of these players that are doing those gigs they have their own tech that hopefully understand these skills that you guys are talking about. But of course in an arena, that's a completely different situation. You have, uh, you relying so much on the engineer to, to, mm-hmm. to, to make the sound what it is. And I, I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say, well, it really doesn't matter because once it goes through the mic and it gets processed and they do all the things that they're going to do, it's going to sound completely different. So I just need to tune it how, or set it up how I, appreciate it you know can can play it the best i can so those these things that you guys are talking about really are applicable to most of us you know Mm -hmm. you know yeah absolutely can i ask you guys about the comments and how that maybe points you in a certain direction or there are some awesome ones. I, I want to actually uh, one. I think it was. Uh, I don't remember which one it was, but uh, this guy writes: "Sounds like a drum equals state of the art drum mechanics." Great vid, Cody, the Bob Ross calm effect master. <laughs> <laughs> I In a noisy drum world, great channel. <laughs> so yeah, I've heard that. I, I read that a couple times as I was digging into the videos. I'm like, wait a minute, I want to see what people are saying about this. And that was a that was an awesome one. Yeah. Bob I'm Ross, get that put on the t-shirts, man, because I have a, I have a t-shirt with Bob Ross say, on it. Actually. Have you worn that during an episode? Not yet, but I'll, I'll, I'll wear it next time. Yeah. Happy little drums, yeah. happy trees, <laughs> happy drums, happy little drums, man. <laughs> happy tones. The 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 only other the only other one where you guys were doing uh, talking about calf heads was uh, somebody wrote, "Meat is murder." <laughs> yeah that's all yeah, they wrote I mean, you're gonna get it yeah, i mean there's always gonna be that and we started including in our descriptions too um the reference to how troll comments will just get yes. deleted because we're trying to establish not just this like one way thing it's, it's supposed to be a conversation there should be a dialogue and those that aren't you know and we're welcome to opinions that 
contradict ours or that have different approaches, sure. that's totally fine. Uh, it's the people that go in there and don't add value to anyone or are simply trying to make themselves heard that we're not really a fan of. You know? No, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah that, that's right off the bat. I think just even having that up there gives this almost like creates a safe space people to say oh good then we can start a discussion because there's so many times that i've wanted to be part of a discussion but then somebody has interjected something or troll you know done something like that and i'm like okay forget it this isn't going to go anywhere because somebody has sabotaged this whole thread yeah so, man. i mean people people want to throw it under the bus sometimes but at the same time i know because i've talked to them that like there are some like kids that watch these things that are like 12 or 13 and they're like i play drums and i like your videos and i i want them to feel cool about asking any question and i don't want some clown you know giving them grief if they don't use the right words or mm. they they don't you know they're, they're trying to get knowledge mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, a some, someone someone funny once said that uh, experience is the thing you get just after you needed it. And <laughs> oh, wow. I, I stand by that, man. And like anybody that's got a question, I, just because I'm lucky enough to have had these experiences, I really want to make sure that I can tell them stuff. And I don't I don't want to waste time on people that are just not there for that. You know, I'd also like to point out that's a huge component of the value of social media in general. Yeah. Social media is not a megaphone. It shouldn't be a megaphone. It should be a platform and a means of, of sharing discussion and experience and having conversation. And there be this, whether it's a establishing a concept for a conversation and then allowing the community to take that and run with it or have a constant dialogue back and forth and to, to help that flourish, um, I think it's super important that there be the presence on whether it's on our YouTube channel in the comments. You know, oftentimes people say, you know, don't ever read the comments, don't dive into the comments. It's just like a, you know, an absolute dumpster fire. Um, and we wanted to take a different approach on that because mm -hmm. we're trying to foster this conversation in this community, mm -hmm. um, not just on YouTube, but also on our Instagram channel too, and making yeah. sure that people feel like they can ask questions and that they can give feedback and, and, really let us know what they think about things or what more they'd want to hear or maybe a situation that they've encountered where they couldn't necessarily overcome it. Um, that that's, that's the stuff that inspires us. I think kind of what you were getting towards earlier was that that inspires a lot of the content that we create. And there have been a handful, more than a handful of episodes that we've created specifically because of comments that we've seen. Yeah. We did sure. one the same week. Like, yeah. like we got a comment on a Thursday and we shot a video about it on Monday and posted it the next Tuesday. And we're like point blank, like this is a really good question that I hadn't thought of. So here wow. you What was it? I, th I think it was, uh, I think it was the sympathetic snare buzz one. Yep. Oh, yeah. okay. Cause, cause that's honestly like, I didn't think of it because I don't ever really think about sympathetic snare buzz cause nobody brings it up to me. Right. Like in sessions or gigs or whatever, like I hear it and it's annoying, but you know, my, my solution of just like turn the wires off and then don't forget to turn them back on, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Thing. Mm. that's that's my like low rent solution because the fact is like you can't you can't not have it and right. what the guy said he actually commented on when when we were talking about setting up your snare wires and not tightening them up to choke them out and i said something like i think that people do this for articulation and someone commented i think that i do it because i don't want so much buzz from the wires when i'm not playing mm -hmm. and i was like oh man like that never occurred to me because i would never tighten them that much 
because I because I, I I want the sound of the drum, but he was frustrated that much by the sympathetic snare noise, right? You know? And right. that those kinds of things are they they result in education, frankly, for me, mm-hmm. you know, like because the why of what other people do. I mean, I need that too. It, it's always learning. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's definitely made for some some interesting topics, and all, definitely a lot of the stuff that we've got in our queue of concepts that we'd like to address eventually. Um, you know, I I think I may have mentioned it earlier, but for the entirety of the time that I was at Diderio, I was doing social community management for Evans Drumheads, and then once um, Diderio purchased Promark, and also managing their social accounts. Um, and so, of course, I was fielding tons of these comments and conversations and questions about. A approaches to things and what product can I buy that'll be, you know, the, the solution to my problem. And Mm. I feel like there's a lot of that, a lot of those topics and the stuff that came up in forums, um, and on, you know, message boards where everybody's an expert and everybody's experience level is dependent on the number of posts they've, they've put up. Um, right. Uh, that that has definitely informed a lot of the the topics, and then also some of the approaches that we'll take when we want to make sure something's set a certain way. Um, we don't we don't go back and revise stuff very often, but when we do, it's it's based off of oh, this is you know we've heard people refer to this before. Oh, I've never heard that that term used before. Okay, well this is something that we know that it's part of the vernacular in the internet drummer world, and mm-hmm. we have to recognize that mm-hmm. that's where we are speaking to that audience as well. We want to make sure that this is a value for them too. Exactly. I, you know, so you touch upon something there. Uh, I think that's what made me such a horrible salesman when I worked here in Nashville. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to straight up tell you this: people would come in with, with a, a drum or a pedal and say, I need something new to fix my problem. And, uh, <laughs> and I'd be like, Oh no, look here, you've got a great pedal. Here's what we need to do. We just need to fix this, turn this screw and you're off and okay, thanks. Have a nice day. And, the door, they, they, <laughs> and Gary's yeah. standing there like, what the hell, man? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know where that could, so I, it, I, I think it goes back to the fact that something that, that Zach brought up about you guys saying, look, this is what, if you have this one drum, if you have a drum, this is what you can do with it. Here's all the things that you can do with it and finding real world solutions mm-hmm. and not just, and again, staying focused on uh, being able to, to manipulate what you have in, in different ways so that it's not just a product that is answering your problems or, you know, it's not the solution is to just find a replacement. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, it's it's so easy to rely on that kind of retail therapy sort of thing as a crutch of like, oh, if I just get that drum, if I just buy that symbol, if I just do this thing, mm-hmm. that'll do what I need. That'll maybe inspire me or get the sound that I've been looking for that's, you know, held me back from playing that thing I wanted to do. Um and, you know, again, this is where the kind of the catalog experience of scrolling through Instagram and seeing all these beautiful drums or whatever it may be that's really attractive to you. And you think, oh, I really need this. Um, and there are people purchasing these products without having even heard them or, or tuned them or, or maybe they're going into a shop and they tap the drum a couple of times and they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And then they buy it or they, that sounds horrible. And then they don't buy it and they don't ever go back to it because it wasn't tuned the particular way that they wanted it to sound at that moment. And so I feel like that idea of, yeah, I mean, we 
both of us have a lot of drums and we we've gotten those drums for a variety of reasons but we like to think that we hold on to them because they fulfill specific needs and that if you're purchasing something new like Cody just recently got a kit that has a 24 inch bass drum he didn't buy a kit with a 24 inch bass drum because he wanted to be able to say he had a 24 inch bass drum he <laughs> did that because he wanted to be able to get a specific sound and have a performance that was unique to having that diameter and you know for a given situation being able to tune the batter head up a little bit higher but still achieve the same pitch as a smaller drum and you know the variety of reasons that come from a sonic perspective so that's sure. a, another one of those things that we're just trying to inspire people to to at least keep in the back of their heads but you know, hopefully that that's at the forefront of the uh, the decision making process when it comes to buying new gear. Yeah, I mean, gear is inspirational. It certainly can be, you know, but it's it's not a it's not an end. It's a, it's a, it should be a means to an end. Yeah, right. And right. and I I believe uh, as as in the kitchen, uh, you know, the fewer the fewer tools that are unitaskers that you have taken up space, the better. Like everything everything you have should be useful for more than one thing. Yeah, absolutely. Unitaskers. Yeah. Right. Hey, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I got a question. Band name. For- <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Taking it. Um, so, do you guys have any? Would you, what would be your advice for anyone that wants to start a project like you guys have done? Because I, I'm sure that there was a starting place. There was a conversation between the two of you. And I know you, Ben, you have experience with social media and, and probably a a lot to work from, but for someone that wants to build something, whether it's a studio or, or a band or a YouTube channel or a podcast or anything like that, but it seems maybe a bit overwhelming or they don't know where to start as as since this is i think relatively new a new channel a new project within the last year what would be your advice for somebody that wants to do something like this uh that's an excellent question um i would say it starts with well, I mean, there's what is the goal? You have to figure out what the goal is. If you're doing something because the journey is interesting to you and it's more about, I want this experience of creating something, you know, maybe thinking about the fact that the majority of the listeners here are drummers. Um, and oftentimes, at least for the majority, it seems like those drummers are playing other people's music. Maybe it's the idea to, okay, I've got, I want to write my own music. I want to start my own band where I'm in control of the creative aspects of it all. Um, that you kind of just have to go out and do it that you know don't waste time making a bunch of plans just mm. you gotta eventually you gotta put down the pen and say like okay i'm gonna make this thing happen i'm gonna stop planning for it and i'm just gonna do it and experiment um but if it's something where you're trying to provide a service for someone if you're trying to provide value and this isn't so much about a creative outlet or maybe it's a mixture of creative outlet and also trying to Uh, establish a personal brand or to be able to draw a community together that it has to come from some degree of experience and expertise. And if you aren't necessarily the person who has that experience or expertise based on the topic that you want to tackle, you got to make sure that you've got the right people on board, partner with other people. You know, I think that regardless of the pursuit, I mean, the fact that 
with this podcast, there's two of you, um, at least there. I don't know if there's, do you guys have more people that you work with? We have, there's three of us total, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that having additional individuals involved and having it being a team effort, it keeps the motivation going. It keeps yeah. you accountable. Um, yeah. that there's, you aren't going to skip a day. I mean, like we've, we've been going now for 26 weeks without fail that every Tuesday there's a brand new episode and, you have to just kind of commit to it and make it happen and push forward and you have to publish stuff. You can't waste time just over polishing and going back and, you know, yeah, of course, hindsight's always going to be 2020. You're always going to wish you'd done something a little bit differently. Um, but hopefully you established a cadence to where you can continue to update and improve and experiment and take the feedback from others and incorporate that as you see fit into your future yeah. productions. But that you just at the end of the day, you just got to do it. And 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 I must add this little caveat is um, just because you see someone else doing a thing and you maybe want to do a similar thing, make sure that you're coming from a place where you have the experience to be able to make the statements that you're making or that you're at least quoting where you got that information from. Yep. We talk about this a lot when it comes to the authenticity of writing and and whether it's prose or, or music or things like that and to quote something and to give reference and, and respect to where that information came from. Um, but it's these days with videos on YouTube or even short form stuff on Instagram, Instagram or Facebook, um, we see it all the time that there's a lot of misinformation spread out there by well-intentioned individuals. That and very really, confident individuals. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, maybe they've gotten something to work for them once or they've produced this thing or they maybe they, they saw a great video on and they're like, oh, I want to make a video about that. And they regurgitate some of the information and maybe leave out a key element, not necessarily knowing that because they don't have the experience with it. you got to be careful with that stuff. Um, sure. Because there are, you know, there is the young individual who's watching this video and taking it at face value and recognizing that, oh, this is, this has to be the way that this is and not necessarily critically thinking about it. Um, And then from the flip side, as the viewer, you got to be critical of all the stuff that you're watching. Um, It doesn't matter who the expert is, how much experience they have. Um, There are plenty of people who have done amazing things who don't necessarily have all the answers in the world or don't necessarily have the answers that are applicable to you mm-hmm. so at the end of the day i mean the the thing we really would hope people get from watching our series is to experiment and invest in their sound and to to make it about their experience and to maybe they pull bits and pieces from what we've said and what other people have said and the experiences that they've had and then just to experiment and to to get more from it on their own yeah yeah no i i I feel like uh, you've touched on some really important things that I've discovered in the time with this podcast is, is having a team around you makes definitely helps, uh, keeps you accountable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And over time, as your audience grows and the interaction between your audience grows, there is an expectation that they have of you as well that is uh, a strong motivator to uh, maintain a quality and a consistency and consistency is also key i believe um, whether it's teaching whether it's a youtube channel uh, a band just you know whatever those things just to kind of keep people constantly engaged because it's so easy to get 
distracted. Well, yeah, I mean, that's like that's, that's how you get a fan base. I mean, whether or not mm-hmm. you like Michael Bay movies, you know what you're getting when you go to a Michael Bay movie. <laughs> and that, that's like it or not. That is that is a, a, one of the secrets to something like that success. It's not so much the content because the content is for the person who likes that content. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about getting them to treat it as literally remarkable as in they're going to talk to somebody about it and be like this i'm remarking to you that this is crazy and you should go check it out you know that that's the sort of thing where the consistency is key because if they like the thing you know like casey nice that was saying this the other day it's like at a certain point if people are liking what you're doing all you need to do is keep doing what you're doing at or Mm -hmm. above the level that you're doing it but like don't throw a wrench in it. Just right. be like, people are digging this, so let's do this as yeah. good as we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny, I was I was listening to a podcast on my way uh, back here from a meeting earlier this morning, and um, it was a, a reference made about if if someone comments negatively about what you're doing and it doesn't it doesn't speak to them and maybe they just have bad things to say about their experience watching what you've produced or listening to you or whatever it may be, um, I think this was in the context of like a restaurateur and the idea of you know getting a bad review on Yelp or something like that. Um, that that shouldn't be a deterrent and in fact that should be fuel for the fire of recognizing that you've made something that isn't for everybody and that's okay. That mm-hmm. the the minimum viable audience is is a very important thing to consider, and focusing to a niche and meeting their needs and doing it really well that that's that tends to breed the greatest degree of success, pretty much regardless of how you define it. Yeah, was that free economics? Hmm? The, the the sausage guy? Is that the one you were listening to? That was uh, let's see. Because um, I listened was, to a uh, restaurant one yesterday. Uh, that was also this was um, this was Seth Godin. Oh, okay. Um, his uh, his new podcast, Akimbo, uh, okay. that he just lays down crazy amounts of knowledge that are applicable to anybody uh, every single week. That's awesome. There's so many good podcasts out there. It's just it's overwhelming. It's so great. Yeah, yep. I've I've been listening to less and less music <laughs> the last few years <laughs> because there are so many cool podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One thing, uh, just a couple of quick things. So one thing that I've been doing at home uh, in my where I'm recording is I've cre- t- taken an old uh, I think Pearl. I'm trying. I don't even remember the name of it. It's a practice kit, so it's like a six by twenty kick drum, and I've created a subwoofer. Out of oh, it. nice! Yeah, oh, yeah. the rhythm traveler. <laughs> yep, the rhythm traveler. Totally. Yeah, I remember having students that yeah, use that yeah. kit. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. It, sound, it sounds amazing. You know, I just nice. inspired by the old DW subwoofers from the '90s that they were doing. Yeah. Any any thoughts on any plans to do something like that, or has that? I don't know. I, I that's it. That's well. You know what? I hadn't thought about it, and now we probably will. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all sorts <laughs> of different things like that that you know, taking inspiration from from other instruments or even from stuff we see people doing. I mean, some of the most creative uses of gear I think I've seen in recent years, I tend to see like in the subways or on the street with street drummers. That's true, man. Where you see people just making do with what they've got to get a given sound. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a lot of inspiration to be taken from that um, to to be able to create things that are maybe off. Off the beaten path. Yeah, there's a few there's a few things like that. I mean, I, I haven't ever had a, a, a legit uh, like woofer drum, but I've definitely done a bunch of sessions where we used a bass drum as a resonator. Yes. Um, yeah. And yeah. There's a few other things like that that 
people have shown me over the years that were just like sort of quick ways to modify a sound, but just with like what was laying around. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I feel like part of me wants to do like a, like a sideline thing of mm -hmm. like specifically under five minute videos of yeah. super shorty things like that. Like, so, you know, we could have done something like that with like the weight on the floor, Tom muffling thing, mm -hmm. or, yeah. you know, you can do, um, like another thing that Keplinger showed me was if you want the snare drum to be brighter, you take a hi-hat cymbal and put it on the floor, uh, like under the snare stand. Whoa. So you can like get it under there and it reflects the high end back off the ground through the drum again. That's And cool. it makes the snare sound a lot brighter. Or, or you can do that with a floor tom too if you need more attack out of a dull that's, drum. That's, I learned a similar thing when I was interning in a studio uh, back in high school where we would take um, – pieces of slate um, mm -hmm. or stones totally. and you could put those underneath the gear so it would reflect naturally and in different directions mm -hmm. um, but that so you would get a little bit more presence out of the bottom side of the snare drum yeah that's, that's insane yeah. okay see we have to wrap this up because guess what i'm doing when we're done <laughs> in the basement yeah, i'm feeding the meter so <laughs> <laughs> um you guys didn't happen to see the onion headline of uh, neil pert pulling out 20 pickle buckets in New York subway when he was busting. <laughs> oh my gosh. I need no. to find that. That's amazing. Oh, no. uh, maybe I'll send it to you. Cause you know, drawing inspiration from seeing people on the street playing. Yeah, man. That's right. fantastic. I bet he had gold hardware on there. Too. <laughs> right. I don't know, but somebody, threw, somebody, somebody threw their trash down. It was like a, a McDonald's cup and he used it as, as his concert toms so as he rolled down. The drums. Nice. And then, and then the lazy Susan spun 180 degrees and he played the electronic pickle buckets. <laughs> okay. I'm just glad that the, uh, the grain of the plastic used for those pickle buckets was cross grain and uh, dredged from the bottom of Lake Superior. Yeah. It's important, man. Yeah, like yeah. I love that 23 inch bass drum. <laughs> All the pickle juice leached out of it, you know. Yeah. See, this is really it this takes is seven hundred years to get the pickle juice. Out. <laughs> yeah, it's just, can't just Still make that. Fermented. Yeah. The urine smell will never go away, though. That's oh, the, so oh my true. god. Well, you know, you got to maintain some of that character. You do. So, uh, what's on the what's coming up? Just anything, any big news coming up just within the next month here, or so? Anything that the, that your viewers can uh, can look forward to. I mean, we've got. We're going to continue to do the uh, the weekly episode thing. We're going to start doing the snare spotlight series more consistently on Saturdays, um, and then uh, I guess the the next big thing to look up for would be or look out for rather would be um, some stuff diving into symbols, and we're going to kick that off with a uh, a relatively interesting approach, uh, a little bit of a micro documentary. So definitely That's stay great. tuned for that. Very cool. Awesome. Well, guys, this has been a lot of fun, and, and, and it's been a lot of fun to dig into the channel. And I, I feel like even after all these years of playing, uh, it, it's exciting to think that there's always new things to learn. And uh, and this and you guys have given us just a platform to just digest all this great stuff. And I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, man. No, thanks for having us. We uh, we definitely had a blast uh, chatting about yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks so much. Cool. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks to Cody and Ben for talking with us. Check them out at youtube.com slash sounds like a drum. Lots of great content on there and it's growing every week. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher and iTunes. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review. That's very helpful to us. 
Also follow us on Instagram at Working Drummer Podcast and don't hesitate to reach out to us if you have any questions or comments. Staying in touch with the drumming community is one of the reasons we do this and we love hearing from you. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview and I want to thank Mike Jackson for his technical assistance for the last time, sadly. As you may have heard Matt announce last week, Mike has decided to step away from the week-to-week operations of the podcast. Uh, He's taught both Matt and I so much about the technical side of this and now it's time for us to fly on our own. We really can't thank Mike enough for all he's done to get the podcast started and to help it grow along the way. So cheers to Mike. Thanks for everything. And thanks to you for listening. Take care.